Today we are talking to Marty Kagan, the most influential tech product leader of our time. I'm talking HP, Netscape, eBay, Adobe. He is the best-selling author of the book Inspired, How to Create Products Customers Love. Marty started as a developer, became CTO, and then full-on product god. He gives advice for CTOs based on their current stage of growth. It's pure gold, Jerry, all right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Okay, so Musk, Bezos, these guys are both guys you like to you'd like to meet i read at the bottom of your most recent post have you read their life stories uh yes i have um and i i do know lots of people that know uh that know the guys and so i hear a lot of secondhand thirdhand stuff but um yeah they're pretty impressive guys right and then you mentioned that you did some work with audible i did yeah that's right what did you do with them well I've worked with several hundred tech companies. Um, they were one of them. Uh, I worked with them both before they were acquired by Amazon and then after they were acquired. And mostly I, I do the same things with companies. I just help them try to get better at product. Yeah, you just tell them, look, people want to listen to the books. And they're like, Marty, you're a genius. This is what we're doing. <laughs> no, no, they knew that. Uh, they knew that. They were uh, they were very early too. There's a there's an untold story behind Audible that not enough people get to hear. Um, and I, I'm with you. I love listening to books. It's a, it's a blast. I wish I had more time for it because it's, it's kind of a slow way to read a book, but it's such a cool way to read a book. I love it. It's, it's passive. Like you can do it in the car, right? Going to work and be consuming content or in the shower rather than having to hold the physical book. Yeah, but it's also very immersive. That's what I love about it. It's... I can imagine, you know, my grandparents talked about how, you know, they'd listen to shows on the radio and that's kind of what I imagine. <laughs> War of the Worlds. <laughs> um, so I, I'm a big fan of the voice too, like with the Alexas and the Google Homes. You, do you have any of those? Sure. And I am too. I, I wrote about um, early Alexa effort recently. Uh, actually that's an article. I, I did just send you one, uh, link, but I probably should have sent you. There's a uh, one that has got a lot of attention from engineers and CTOs called, um, it's called, what is it? Customer inspired technology enabled. And it talks about a lot of the best, uh, innovations, uh, out there and how basically all of them came from the engineers. And I, and including the early Alexa story, Alexa didn't start as Alexa, you know, it started as a much more modest and pretty unexciting thing. And one of the engineers just saw the potential. So, um, and actually I, I told this in this article, I tell the story of, of six very impressive products like that. Oh yeah. I, I want to read that. Did you send me that link? I will. Here. Yeah. And I'll post it in the show notes too. So people can go check that out. You're you're a fantastic author, Marty. Oh, thanks. I, I very much enjoy it. the way I found your book. I was at my my friend Derek's house, and he's a CTO, and it looked beautiful. And it was on the uh, you know on his bookshelf, and said you know how to create products customers love. And I was like, oh man, like how can you ignore that title, <laughs> right? Even if you feel like you know what you're doing, you that title just says like come read me, right? So I, I picked it up and I started flipping through it and I was like, oh, this is, this is real smart. I ended up borrowing the book. Um, that was when I actually read like with the pages and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> I sat, now I sound old, right? Uh, no, so <laughs> was it, was it a black book or a white book? Uh, black with the orange bottom. Yeah. So that was the first edition of Inspired. Um, I just recently published the second edition, which is actually a 100% rewrite. Um, and that's the one I sent you a review from a CTO um, uh, on the new edition. So, Oh, excellent. So uh, what, so it's 100% rewrite, but you kept the, the name and title. And then like, can you get better than perfect? Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, that's you know, it was a ten-year-old book. Now it just hit 
in January this month. It's 10 years old. The first no movie. way. Yeah, so um, it's it's shocking how much is still relevant. Uh, that surprises even me. But there, it's not really that. I focus on principles anyway, which are meant to be you know last a long time. But still, um, all of the things I talk about, I think there's way better ways to talk about now. So uh, and a lot more recent examples, and so um, so I ended up just completely rewriting it. Oh, okay. I will definitely check it out. Yeah, here's so I'm not like always super nice and super happy to everybody. If you you know listen to the show, like I I'm not just being nice to you. I like I genuinely believe in your work. Here's what happened. So I I got your book from Derek, uh-huh. and I and I went home. This is a couple years ago. Maybe I don't know. Time is actually kind of difficult for me now that I'm getting older. But um, and I'm only 30, so like I'm not that old. Uh. I started taking notes. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I came across this, you know, this is right. This is, um, I felt like I was a, a craftsman or like a tool maker and I've made this library of tools over the course of, you know, my experience. But then I walked into a hardware store where there's these like refined tools that are like really, really good. And so I just started eating them up and then I had to stop taking notes because I realized I was essentially just transcribing your book. I was like, okay, I'm not taking any more notes. I'm like, you know, 10 pages in and I'm just done. I'm just going to now recommend the book to people. Right. (laughs) Well, that's good. It's, it's, it's cool that people like it. It's, it's, uh, it's fun to write. Yeah. So I'm reading in your background, right. Doing the show notes, prepping for the show, talking with Marty. And I see that, uh, I saw 1990s and Netscape and instantly boom, right in my mind. I was like, browser wars. Like, were you a part of this? On the periphery, I got to watch the whole browser wars. I was working on, I was responsible for platform and tools. So uh, there was a separate team that was doing browser and a separate team that was doing server. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was, it was unfortunate because that is what actually led to the demise of Netscape. So, and I, <laughs> and I totally loved adored Netscape. I would still be working there if I could. Uh, but you know, we, we did lose the browser wars after about six years. Um, and then, uh, then it was, the company was acquired by AOL and, uh, you know, it's not the same after that. And I, uh, I joined, uh, eBay after that. So why did you like it? Was it the relationships, the people there or? Well, a number of things. First of all, there were the most amazing, uh, I mean, people like, uh, I mean, Ben Horowitz was there, Mark Andreessen was there. I mean, I could list literally 40 names that have gone on to just sort of greatness around the industry. Um, And so working with these people was amazing. But even more, I thought, um, you know, Netscape was kind of the birth of the Internet. And so it was really the epicenter for this whole new industry. And so for a product person, this is awesome. You know, custom, we didn't even have to leave the off of the building. Customers were coming to us literally every day and startups were coming to us literally every day. And so um, uh, it doesn't really get much better than that. And the technology was moving so fast and um, people were doing things that they could never do before. That's always a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, I got to watch so many companies get born you know, like Amazon and eBay and uh, Yahoo. And then about a year later, Google and a couple of years later, Facebook, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's amazing thing to watch. Cool. Yeah. So I, I like your, the Amazon reference too. I saw one of the old pictures has been circulating the internet of Bezos with his, you know, wood table and mm-hmm. his like handwritten sign. Right. And we moved into a new office uh, expanding and we've been so busy the past month that I hadn't had a chance to change the outside sign, right? We don't have a lot of people come to the physical office anyways. So it's not like a, a something that occurs often. Uh, but then I was just like, oh, it's kind of Bezos-like. So <laughs> I removed my motivation for changing changing the uh, all the signs all outside. But um I, I see you have some you have some formal education with like, you know, I call it like old education uh, with some Stanford stuff. And I'm just kind of curious, like, did you find a lot of value in your education, like like collegiate like education or no? Well, my education was computer science and I definitely feel like that's what uh, that was the key for me because it gave me 
um, I was kind of in that first wave um, of engineers, and it meant that I had amazing job offers. I didn't even have to leave the campus, Apple and HP and a, several other companies. I, I narrowed it down to HP and Apple and then chose HP. But um, so if I hadn't have learned how to code basically that way, I, I actually learned to, to code as a kid. Um, so it's not really that I learned to code, but I did learn a lot. Um, and it is true, every developer I know, you know, what they teach you in school and what it's really like to develop software for real products is different for sure. But, um, but I felt like I had a good foundation and most importantly, it got me some really good job offers and I joined a great team at HP labs. And so that's where I really learned to write software as at HP labs. And, um, so that was useful. And I also did that at Stanford. It was, it's their executive MBA. It's just a short it's a summer program. And for me, that was perfect because I, there's no way I wanted to stop, you know, building products for two years and go get an MBA. And, uh, right. so a, a summer was just right. Um, yeah, and the, you know, HP was really good about sending you there. And, uh, anyway, I liked, I liked that. Um, that was enough. Yeah. Do any, do any college professors, have they ever reached out to you and let you know that they actually use your book in their college courses? Well, not my college professors. I, I don't know. That, <laughs> that was a long time ago, but there are lots of, uh, my book is actually used in a lot of classes in, in, business schools and software engineering programs and computer science, um, probably because there aren't, you know, in, in that space, there, there's not that many choices. Um, and was this your first book? Yeah, it was my first book. That might be kind of tough though, right? You come out and you have like an amazing book that you set the, you set the bar super high. <laughs> well, that's true. I was nervous, um, you know, turning out a whole new edition because what if people didn't like it as much? Um, but you know, I felt like you gotta, this is true with your, any product too. You gotta take risks. And, um, if you're going to make it better, uh, I believe it's significantly better. And so far all the reviews have sort of agreed with me. So that's good. And I'll audible it. It's audible, right? It is going to come out on audible. The publisher is doing the audible thing now, but it's, it's on, uh, uh, of course, Kindle and print right now. Are you doing the voiceover? I offered to, but they oh. don't seem very excited about having an author do it. They they said what? that. What? That's yeah. the best ones. I'm an Audible listener. I'm a. If you look at my Audible, you'd be like, "Wow, is he actually really does listen to Audible?" Um, I mean, I'm consuming the great courses. Like that's how I fall asleep. <laughs> the the foundations of Western civilization is how I fell asleep the past fifty six hours, fifty six course hours. <laughs> so like I like that stuff. I like passively consuming educational content. I love it when the author is the one speaking. Yeah, I do too. And I I said that, but um, they just said that Audible and the publishers they said they found that in general books do better when it's. Um, when it's read by a professional voice. All right. Interesting. I, I've been, um, I'm assuming that in some way you use Facebook, like even if it's locked down for just your family, right? I do. I do. Although I, I've been, um, to be honest, I have been contemplating if I want to continue with that. So here's a, so I, I do it because my wife tags me. We have a four month old baby girl. Okay. It's first child. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So, so I'm getting tagged about 75 times a day. <laughs> this is the baby wearing this outfit. This is the baby eating food. This is me refinishing furniture while the baby watches. So like quite a bit. Um, so, so I go in there and, you know, I check it. And uh, also the show has a Facebook page where I engage with CTOs, which is kind of cool. But uh, I noticed they added this uh, non-blocking animations is a trend I'm starting to see. Uh, and I, it maybe have been a trend and I'm just now picking up on it. But what I mean by that is, um, like you hit the, the like and like a bunch of, uh, likes icons sure. yeah. made up and out, but traditionally animations were blocking. And I mean, like I would say, yes, I want it. And there was a success message would come up and the little check mark would animate and like it would block that animation would block me from interacting with the app. So uh, I'm noticing these sort of like passive non-blocking animations coming up and then I flip open I start talking about this with some friends and then I flip open this app called Musical.ly, which apparently is just 
taking the world by storm music with the the, the next generation and it it looks like it's so busy there's icons and stars and it looks like a crazy game like it, there's so much happening it's so intense about what's going on and my question for you is are these busier interfaces do you think that they're short-lived uh, or do you think they're going to be like long term well it's actually more complicated than that um so i and i i'm this is fresh in my head this topic because i just came back every year or two i go to china um and i don't know if you've had a chance to visit there but in the tech world it's just amazing and i've been going there for now 20 years um and it is, you know, there, if you look, if a typical American looks at um, one of their services or apps, they're like, oh, my God, how could people stand this? It's like nonstop. You know, my head is spinning. You know, it's so busy. It makes our stuff look like Craigslist or something. Right. And, and, uh, and, and, I, and the truth is um, they are dramatically successful. I mean, they have 750 billion internet users there and it's just, sorry, 750 million internet users. It is, <laughs> um, it is massive. And so it's not as simple as saying, you know, is this just a design trend or not? Depending on the application, depending on the user, um, sometimes it is more appropriate. Um, uh, actually, isn't Musical.ly also a Chinese uh, I think it's a Chinese service too, but um, anyway, uh, so it's, you know, you kind of have to judge each one independently based on the goals and its users. And um, sometimes it's, you know, one of the easiest ways to do that is different cultures around the world. Like uh, South Korea famously likes these just more rich or <laughs> crowded, cluttered interfaces. Japan likes these. Um, and China definitely likes these. And, and a lot of the more Western cultures prefers otherwise. But I think that doesn't mean that, that one is necessarily good or bad. It's whatever is necessary for that product and that audience. Now that, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this conversation. So one of my friends is um, Jack and he's the, he's the president of the opera. And we have a fairly popular opera in our city, uh, like Opera House. Mm -hmm. And... He, we were we were eating lunch and he was telling me about how you know historic like back back in the day right they would people would come listen to these operas because they were sensory overload like people might think that they're boring now oh you got a person singing and some music playing but for for then what they were experiencing in, the, in their regular everyday life when they would come to this opera and watch there would be so much happening so much to take in it was like sensory overload and so when you were talking I was thinking about that like I do see it more in games than I do in business apps, maybe because, you know, that's part of your everyday life, the sort of business app and, and the, in the games, maybe for the next generation, they're, they're making them a lot more stimulating. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, there's certainly game mechanics and this idea of really keeping people's attention is one dimension. You're right. It shows up a lot in games, but you just have to look, this is where, you know, design Design is one of the three key roles in product, and and it's uh, I have so much respect for great designers, uh, great interaction designers, experienced designers, visual designers, industrial designers. They are, you know, it's a, it's a super hard problem that they're asked to tackle and come up with really the right experience for that customer trying to solve whatever problems they're trying to work on. So. Um, yeah, I try to keep an open mind. And I also know just because I don't like an interface really is meaningless if uh, if I'm not in the target market, for sure. Absolutely. In China, have you ever seen um, a business system or, or some sort of business utility like a CRM or something like that that has a dance dance revolution style yeah. busy <laughs> interface? Well, I haven't. But the truth is, you know, because of the language difference, I have a hard time really uh you know i can't do like i can in the u.s where i can just go sit down and play with an app or something um i don't really don't know what the uh, financial app is saying i couldn't tell you if it's a payroll app or a crm app so um you go to open your bank account and it's like two kittens and a duck you're like uh, am i broke <laughs> 
Um, my sister actually lives in Shenzhen, and she's been there for quite a while. So I, I talk to her all the time. and um, She could probably answer that. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if they have... There is this uh, trend around the world called consumerization of the enterprise, which is bringing a lot of consumer practices to business software. And uh, so I would not be surprised if that some of that has been done. Um, just like you can see LinkedIn adapt a lot of Facebook um, techniques over the years, for sure. If somebody has a relationship at LinkedIn, they need to go work on their ad platform. <laughs> if you try, you, you go spend 10 minutes creating an ad on Facebook, and then you go spend 10 minutes creating an ad on LinkedIn. Like LinkedIn feels like their ad system feels like the outsourced, like yeah. $2,000 that they spent to have someone make an ad system. Like it, 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 it frustrated me. And then it was really expensive. So I was just like, eh. And I just, I don't mess with ads on LinkedIn right now. That's a user experience thing though. Like if it was pleasant to make ads on their system and they were more expensive, I still might do it. But it's frustrating and it's more expensive and that, that marks me out. Yeah, if if though you really do, if your business needs to be on LinkedIn, um, then that's sort of the only game in town, and so that's why LinkedIn makes so much money for from advertisements. Right. Um. So your book, um, the title, right? Inspired: How to Create Products Customer Love. Do you have a sort of like one sentence answer to that title? Like when I say, hey, Marty, you know, how do you create products customers love? Do you have some sort of quick Answer for that? Uh, no, is the truth. Um, in fact, I usually start by telling people, you know, doing a great technology-powered product is super hard. Many things have to be done well. If any of them doesn't get done well, you have a failure. Um, so that's kind of my elevator's pitch: is doing product is hard. Don't fool yourself. And in fact, I think you know, there's always people that try to tell you it's not. It doesn't have to be hard. And I think they're just. Uh, they're not helping anybody by saying that. When I saw that question, what came through my mind was I was actually trying to, you know, be a little introspective and, and think back to the products that I love and think about why I love them, right? And what I came up with for me personally, right, is when the when the result is is greater or equal to than the expected value. So what I mean by that is when a product does what I expect it to do, I'm happy and I like it. When it exceeds my expectation, I love it. And when something happens that I don't expect at all and it's not what I wanted, then I dislike it. And so I kind of look at it as when when expectation and reality are in sync or the uh, reality is greater than the expectation, that's when I love a product. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a reasonable trait of a successful product is, you know, exceed the expectations for sure. Um, but, you know, it's hard enough to actually do something that your customers love, but it's even harder, you have to do it in a way that your customers love, but also works for your business. And that right. um, that's where a lot of companies, a lot of teams, product teams fall over as they, they think, all we have to do is make our users love us. And I'm like, no, un unfortunately, it's a lot harder than that. You have to do it in a way that you can afford as a business. You have to do it in a way that doesn't get you in trouble with the SEC or get you <laughs> in trouble with the the law or, or in, in trouble with privacy advocates, I mean, or in trouble with your marketing organization, or it has to be something your salespeople can sell. I mean, there are so many, uh, you know, it's a lot harder than just something your users love. First of all, I agree with that. So I have two products. So I, we don't, first of all, we don't do any ads. Like this is a value-based show, right? We're having you on bring value and, I'm just doing this as sort of like, this is what I enjoy doing. Like I enjoy talking to smart people, enjoying talking technology. And before I was trying to do that, like through building, cause I have a, you know, an app company and stuff and I work with some VC firms, things like that. And that, that happens, that pays the bills and that's whatever. But, uh, w I noticed that that's the long way. Cause I'm trying to get us, you know, in, in those circumstances, I'm getting people to do business with me or I'm being a part of a business deal. But I noticed that there's a much faster way. I just call people up and talk to them. <laughs> And that's that's like what I enjoy doing. So 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 this is this is what I love, and so I'm living you know what I love in my dream, and I'm super happy. Uh, there's two products that I I use, and uh, no association, they don't pay me or anything. Uh, but in, and I feel like that they're making me fall in love with them like more and more. Not only did I initially fall in love with them 
and but I'm continually falling in love with them as they do new things. And I'm like, ask myself this question this morning. I'm like, is, is Marty behind any of these? <laughs> so it's, it's the two I'm talking about are uh, Envision, right? And Intercom. Have you heard of either of those? Sure. Um, yeah. And I Envision, um, yeah, and you're referring, do you use all their design tools? I don't use all of them, no. Some of them. Yeah, I use them to mock up interfaces to show people prototypes. Yeah, uh, I'm with you on Envision too, that I just, I think they're terrific and I um, uh, I love what they've been able to do. And I, I but I, I'm not an official advisor or investor in their company, but I have trained almost all of their product people um, and design people and uh, friends with their CEO and the co-founder, the other co-founder who's a designer and just love what they've been doing. And um, one of my partners, Leah Hickman, was their head of product and uh, I introduced her to them. And anyway, it's a, it's an, a, a great story. For I, knew, sure. I knew you were close. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, do you know a, a gentleman by the name of Aaron Walter? Uh, what's his last name? Uh, Walter. He's the VP of design at Envision. Oh, um, yeah. Um, he's the head of design education. And they have done, by the way, I think they've done a beautiful job at building community around design, um, really better than just about anybody else I know. It's, they have, uh, it's, a, it's a unique and I think a very powerful approach to marketing. So that is terrific. Um, yeah, and that's what he does. And I think, he, I think I have actually met him, but I was only surprised because their head of design uh, is another guy. Um, and I'm trying to remember his name at the moment, but I'll remember it in a second what about um you know april underwood oh yeah at slack sure another great product leader yeah she's on maternity leave right now and uh we're trying to get her on the show (laughs) we we, we, we reached out and we're like oh man i was reading uh about her online i was like oh this she's she's smart like this is good this is good we we need to have april on the on the show and so we reached out and they're like oh uh she's on maternity leave. So it may be difficult, but they didn't say no. Right. And I'm always, I'm like, okay, cool. They didn't say no. So I grabbed the, like the best looking picture of my daughter, like so cute. Right. Uh, <sighs> and I, and I attached it to the email and I'm like, all right, Jenny, she's like, you know, my, the producer PR person, like Jenny, send it out and be like, Oh, we want to talk about the kids too, because I just went through this. I just, you know, had my first child and, and that's a, you know, so much experience there. So many things happening, you know? Yeah. See if we can get her on the show and let's talk about the uh, the designing great products with children <laughs> or something. Let's find an angle, you know. So I, I, uh, it'd be cool if she were on this show. She would be perfect. Yeah. And Slack is an amazing story. So oh, I know their story. I love them. I was a part of it since their invite stage. Uh, I follow them, and they just they keep delivering, and I keep using it. It's a every project I have that I'm involved in, I, it's a requirement. And it, I used to have to establish it as a requirement, you know, a few years ago as it was emerging, but now nobody even like everyone already has their Slack. They're like, yeah, we use Slack too. Yeah. Almost everybody does, which is amazing in and of itself, how quickly that's come. I want to know Marty, I want to know what gets Marty pumped up. Like what gets you excited in life? Well, I do get a ton of energy from startup founders. Um, you know, there's a, not all of them, some of them are just purely, you know, mercenaries, you could, you meet them, and they're just clearly in it for the money, and fine, not very interested in those ones, but some of them, so most of them, in my experience, are um, just so passionate about what they're working on, and and genuinely trying to change the world in a good way, Uh, and I don't always get excited about their vision. Don't get me wrong. Some of them I love. Like when I heard about what Envision wanted to do, I loved it because I felt like there was room for that. Adobe had owned that space for years, but it was time for, you know, there was definitely room for a new key player. Uh, but other, time, other times I'm like, yeah, well, there's there's probably a market there. I'm not excited about it myself, but um but that doesn't matter what I, it's that passion of the co-founders that, that really is, uh, it's amazing kind of energy. And I love that. And, you know, if, if I can help them in, in any way, you know, try to maybe increase the odds that they succeed, I'm, 
I love that. Oh, absolutely. And I, I loved Adobe's, um, I liked their, their pivot when they went monthly. That was, I thought that was a real smart move for them. Well, it was incredibly smart and necessary, but you know, most people don't appreciate just how incredibly hard that was and how uh, the vast majority of companies would never have had the courage to do what they did. You mean rewriting and reworking your entire product line across like 20 uniquely written apps that are like, like huge, massive feature bases? On top of that, that's literally taking 50% of the revenue of Adobe, $2 billion, and putting it all at risk. That kind wow. of bet is, is really rare. I wrote about that story, if you're interested in the backstory. Um, it's one of the most amazing stories in our industry, and, and it's largely an untold story because you know, pe- people know that they're the fastest company to a billion in subscription revenue, but they, uh, they have no idea what, what happened to make that happen. Right. What, what sort of content do you consume? Like, What's your digital diet look like? Well, um, sounds like like you I do like to read um, I would say the most one of the most important because I, I I'll tell you my challenge is keeping up with all of the the sub industries in technology that I work with I mean I work with companies not based on their industry it's more about their team and uh, so there are many more industries than I actually know about uh, and so following those closely is would be a full-time job and I actually my little uh this isn't a secret I've told other people they should do the same thing but do you know the blog Stratechery? No say that again? It's a goofy name and it's spelled um s-t-r-a-t-e-c-h-e-r-y dot com Stratechery and it is um by far I think the best blog on um technology strategy and analysis and he follows the entire technology industry and um, is incredibly insightful this is all he does is follow the industry and write daily um, his analysis and um, so that's my digital diet in terms of work stuff usually starts with about a half an hour reading and thinking about what he has to say and then um uh, and that covers probably 80% of the companies that I even interact with. So that's a huge time saver for me. And also, he, I think he's such a good thinker about strategy that he, it makes me a better thinker about strategy. How'd you find him? Um, he's pretty well known in the tech industry, and he's been going for a while. His name is Ben Thompson. Um, yeah, you'd like it. Uh, for for CTOs... Um, one of my favorite blogs is called uh, Code as Craft. Do you know that blog? No, but I'm in love with the name. Yeah. So one of the best companies in the product world is Etsy, E-T-S-Y. You know Etsy probably. And they produce a blog called Code as Craft. Mm. Um, yeah, I've known Etsy. I mean, I was an advisor at Etsy when they were just uh, a few co-founders, and now they're huge and public. But they... Um, but they have been publishing this blog that really thinks deeply about how to build product. Um, and so I, I love their blog and they've written, I mean, it's now more than 10 years of great content. So you should check that out. And actually, it's strong, I strongly encourage you know, CTOs to read that. It's a great one. Yeah, better. Yeah, we're going to have we're going to have these people on the show. The uh, Well, he'd be great for you to have on the show probably and the other another one they so so etsy just hired a new cto um that who i mean they've had actually a pretty legendary cto and then um you know but the company's pretty old and public now and they just hired a new one who's fantastic his name's mike fisher he was the cto at paypal before and he's uh, a great thinker in terms of technology leadership um so he'd be a good guy for you to interview as well if you haven't. And that's say his name again. Michael Fisher. Michael Fisher. And was he there when Musk was there? When who was there? Musk. Uh, Elon was there. At uh, I don't. Th- oh, you mean at PayPal? Yeah. No. Um, he came after a little after. That was. But you know, I love early PayPal actually, and there was a lot of. Uh, I mean, it was an incredibly fast-growing company, but. You know, dealing with scale is, as you know, is super hard. 
it's yeah. the biggest challenge for most CTOs. And he was there through a major stretch of growth for PayPal. Um, and anyway, he's advised uh, CTOs for, for the last like seven or eight years. And then he, um, he decided to join Etsy because it's a pretty prestigious position to be Etsy's CTO and he couldn't turn it down. So uh, he had been advising them for many years also. Um, I'm going to, by the way, I'm, we're going to figure this out, Marty. I'm going to put some people together and we're going to get uh, Musk and Bezos. I'm going to fly out there. They're all in California and you and I, we're going to go meet them, have lunch with them, high five them. You can, you can talk the whole conversation. I just want to be the fly on the wall. <laughs> yeah, I wish, but they're in a different orbit, but they are, they are, uh, they're pretty impressive for sure. CTOs off the cuff advice. I know when we sent the email, um, we talked about, you know, CTO sh shouldn't be involved in, in the product UI design. That was, that was your stance. I, my initial, I had like this initial knee jerk reaction was like, what? And then I, and then I use some of my personal principles, right. With boiling it back, back down and, uh, taking, uh, you know, using Marty as my spirit animal, basically like assuming your role and thinking about your experience. And cause people don't just say stuff usually like smart people don't usually just say stuff. They have experience behind it and that's how they came to their conclusions. Right. So I'm like, all right, well, well, I'm going to try to get inside Marty's mind. Like, where is he coming from when he's saying that they shouldn't be a part of it? Because in my experience, it's different. So I, I tried to blend the two and, and figure it out. And here's what I came up with. You ready for yeah. it? Yeah. A lot of the experience that I'm having with CTOs. So I started finding all the CTOs in the world and emailing every single one of them. Like personally, like I spent just ungodly amounts of time, Marty, just reaching out to them, researching them, asking them questions, talking to them. I wanted to get a feel for the heartbeat of this community. And what I found was very surprising to me. Uh, I found that over 60%, almost as high as 80% of the people who wear that label, right? The people who wear the label, um, they have the experience of going from developer to CTO. So they were writing some code and then they got a co-founder or someone together and then they wrote a code of a first version of the application and then they started to grow the company. That is the majority of what I experience on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Those types of people. So what, where I was coming from when I'm asking that is my goal in life is I did that. I, I was a developer that became a CTO and that was my experience and I struggled to learn all of these things. You know, I, God, I wish I would have found your book. First of all, I wish you would have written it 20 years ago. <laughs> Secondly, I wish I would have been there on the day it was released because it, it would have, it probably wouldn't have meant the same to me because when you go through struggle and have pain and like learn hard experiences, the information means more to you than just words on a page, right? So uh, from, from that perspective, I wanted to bring some value and, and bring on uh, an expert like you to, to give some advice to the CTOs. So I've kind of, I've kind of grouped them into three categories because I talked to all of them and they all kind of fall into these three categories. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to give you kind of like a context and then I'm going to ask you for like, you know, just a, off the top, whatever comes to your mind, it's not a difficult thing. You know, the, the advice that you would give them. Is that cool? Sure. Okay. So the first would be like the startup CTO. This is what I was describing before. It's, it's majority of CTOs and they're usually one to two people developing a product and the person developing is, is usually the CTO or he's writing code or he's wearing that label. And so I found that when I did it, I didn't have a lot of UI UX experience. I had none. I just started writing and testing. So what advice would you, other than read my book, <laughs> what advice would you give the, uh, the start sort of like the startup CTO, the new CTO who's just developing something with a, with a partner? Well, so this is more of the co-founder CTO. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a very small team. And I don't, I want to be careful. I don't want to sound hypocritical because I actually uh, had the same path as you there. I has started as an engineer and moved up and, and was CTO of a startup called Continuous Software. And, um, and, and uh, I also had design and product under me. So I, I had all three of those roles. But again, this started as four people and ended up as like 100 people. Um, and then eventually they went public and were acquired by IBM. But that was, you know, they went through those stages. So it's not impossible. But what we are talking about really is what's best practice and how, how do you really increase your uh, chances of success. And when I did that startup, that was just before the Internet. That was like 1990 to 1995. That was um, 
to be honest, design was nascent compared to what it is now. So I think I got lucky. We kind of got away with it. I don't think you can get lucky like that today. Well, in fact, I usually encourage, um, well, first of all, I should get, there's a principle in software that's worth, uh, that's actually best stated in a famous book that every CTO should read. It's called The Inmates Are Running the Asylum. Have you heard of this? Oh, no, but the title, again, is amazing. Yeah, well, his point, it was written by a very famous, uh, actually, uh, engineering architect, the guy who actually was behind Visual Basic from Microsoft. And he, um, he explained the reason so many products are so bad is because they are being designed by engineers. Hmm. And he was arguing that the reason that's bad, and again, I admitted in the beginning, I was trained, I was trained in computer science, so I had to say I'm guilty of the same thing. When you're trained in computer science, you're trained in how to solve problems uh, uh, in ways that are represented on the computer, as opposed to how to get inside users' heads. It's about implementation models rather than user mental models. And his argument was the reason so much software is so bad is because it's being designed by engineers. And this is a very famous book. It was written by Alan Cooper. And, um, and I think once that book probably got out there, and that was like 15 years old at this point, but it's still a famous and popular book, um, most, uh, most of the time engineers realize that they are not trained to actually design software well. Now, building software is different than designing the experience, of course. We're not, I'm not talking about building the experience, building the front end. I'm talking about designing the front end or designing the experience. And that is, um, that is a special skill set. Now, I do happen to know a handful of great engineers that are also great at design. But they are, I mean, that's a true unicorn in truth. Those are very rare people. Uh, I love it when I meet these people. I only know one. He's the one that gave me your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's, those people are awesome. And if, you know, I always tell people when I, if they, if they've got people like that, don't ever lose them. You know, they are so valuable. But the vast majority of are, are not like that. So you either get a bad experience or bad code, one or the other. And I don't think either of them are acceptable. So um, the principle is these are different skill sets. Most CTOs, not only do they not know how to design, they don't have those skills or talents. They don't even know what to look for in truth. Uh, and right. so this is, this is normally UX design lives as part of product management and UX design. Those two are together. Um, and that, that is best practice. Now, the other side of this, uh, we're still talking about your scenario here of uh, uh, early stage startup. My view is in an early stage startup, once you've hired three or four engineers, it's time really to hire a designer. Now, if, it, if you're an early stage startup, don't get me wrong, the designer is going to work for probably the CTO. It might maybe working for the CEO. Doesn't matter so much. What matters is you get a designer in there. Otherwise, I tell them they're wasting their engineers. Um, as, as a company grows, it becomes a bigger issue. The other thing I would talk about is if you were, to, when you interviewed these CTOs, mm -hmm. and I don't know how many of them are honest with you on this, but I, if I ask this question of CEOs, how many of your companies are um, suffering or at least struggling with technical debt? And, um, you know, this is probably the single biggest topic for your audience, tech debt. Uh, and the vast majority of companies today struggle with tech debt in a minor to a major way. Um, in fact, way too many of them to a major way. And so my point is, look, first, we need those CTOs to make sure they can enable the company to build what it needs to build. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, occasionally I'll meet a CTO that is passionate about design or product and they're like, great, but make sure first, you know, you do your, your job that the whole company's counting on you to do. 
otherwise, you could either kill the company or very likely, you know, the, you know, the one who's fired from tech debt is almost always the CTO. Yeah. So, um, you know, they need to take that seriously. That's a huge, huge responsibility. Architecture constantly improving, enabling the business to deliver on its vision. That is incredibly hard. Hiring and retaining great engineers is hard. <laughs> um, evangelizing the technology is hard. These are the core responsibilities of a CTO. Um, of course, I think it's a good trait when I meet CTO, CTOs that care about product and design. To me, that's a great sign. And, and uh, every once in a while, you get a CTO like that. And in fact, Etsy had a CTO like that. His name was Chad Dickerson, and they actually promoted him to be CEO, which is very rare. You may know there's not many CEOs that came from the CTO role. Right. Most, C most CEOs come from the product role. Uh, and I liked Chad from the very beginning, in large part because of that. He, he cared about not just building, but also creating a culture and creating great solutions for his customers. And so um, it's, a tr it's a positive trait. But even Chad, who cared about all that, he had a separate product and design organization. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fresh in this, right? Because it's, it's happened over the past decade for me. And that's why I wanted to start talking about it right away rather than, you know, waiting 20 years to start talking about it, right? Um, so in that transition, what I noticed is going from developer to CTO and then, you know, CTO to almost like in, investor type individual. Because um, once you once you go through making bad products and you learn to make good products, then once you 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 making good products, then you figure out how to make products that make money and create value and bring value to the market. Then you figure out that it's all about the people because people aren't buying no um, nobody buys a car to have a a large two thousand pound piece of metal in their garage, they buy a car for the value of transportation, right? Or for the value of something else, whether it makes them feel good because it sounds fast or look, you know, whatever it is. But you, you never buy something directly. You're always buying the byproduct or the value of something, right? And they don't mm -hmm. buy your code directly. What they're doing is they're buying the value that your CRM code base brings them in their life, their ability to connect better with their relationships. So I started, I started out feature first because I was a developer. So I'm always writing features. So I started feature first. Then I figured out, okay, I got to go value first. And then I figured out, oh, you got to go talk to people and make sure that the value is, is actually a need in the market, right? So that the market demands this value exist. Uh, otherwise your business doesn't exist. And once I kind of put those together and realized, okay, well, it's all about people and value. Then you, during that process, you have to really, you know, kick up your EQ and, and become aware of these things and then interact with people. And that sort of pulled me from my generally, you know, introverted state, you know, into more of like a understanding people because uh, it was fascinating for me. And then once I figured all, once I got through those stages, I was like, oh, well, this is, um, this is just kind of, kind of how things work. So I could see what you mean uh, when you're saying, you know, you get a lot of product people that go to CEO because product people tend to learn those things like immediately or specialize in those things and then go out in the world and try them. Right. Whereas me, I started specializing in writing clean code and scalable code. And then I had to transition to that role and then learn those skills and practice them and then, you know, move on. So I get what you mean when you say that it's, it's rare for the CTOs. I guess it's just the person and who they are and if, if they really care about um, that part of the job. Right. So the second is like kind of like our mid growth people going from um, 20, like let's say 20 to 50. We get a lot of those. I get a lot of people. That, that have 20 something people, they're growing 30, they're expected 50 by the end of the year. Uh, they're actually doing this off of revenue and not investor capital, which is you know, what I look for. I look for people that have revenue, not people that raised, oh, I raised a bunch of money. It's like, okay, great. I wanna see people that have raised a bunch of revenue. <laughs> and, um, and they're kind of struggling with uh, you know, growing as the CTO. When do they get the product person? What do they look for in a good project? product manager like how do they validate and identify the expert that they're going to they're going to start to relinquish control of the product right maybe they were working with a designer they're going to start to relinquish control put a product owner in place like what do they look for when hiring that person and scaling that part of their business 
Well, the first thing, I, the, the most common pattern I see is actually a little different than what you're describing. You're describing the scenario, and I think it's just self-selection because you've been talking to CTOs where the CTO kind of had product responsibility and then they sort of let it go uh, over time, um, give it to somebody else. More common, I, I'm pretty confident saying this, but I think this is more common, is there's a, almost always a, two or three co-founders for these startups. And one of them is a technology leader, like you're saying, usually a CTO. And the other one is typically the CEO. Um, and that CEO is the one who usually has product responsibility um, early on. So it's already in the, t the most common startups, I think, split. Um, now then the question becomes, when does the CEO decide it's time to bring in a product person. If the CEO, the CEO may be a product person uh, and then it'll go typically a lot longer, but if they're not, they're covering it and eventually bring in a product person. Uh, just like they have that question, when do we bring in a designer? Nor normally for a startup, they'll bring in a designer quite early because they want to make sure their engineers are not building useless stuff. Uh, but they'll um, bring, they don't bring in a product leader until later because, like I said, one of the co-founders is playing the role of the product leader, which I like. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, in fact, I like them to play that role as long as they can. But at a certain point, they do have the CEO usually has to decide are they going to focus on raising money or are they going to focus on driving the product? And so um, many, many companies have, have gone through that kind of decision. Uh, sometimes the CEO decides, like Zuckerberg's case, to bring in uh, somebody like a Sheryl Sandberg so that he could really focus on product and not have to worry about running the company. And other times, like at Etsy, uh, the original founder, Rob Kalin, decided to um, bring in a head of product uh, so that he could focus on guiding, guiding, guiding the company and let go of the product role. See, and this is exactly why I wanted Marty Kagan on the show. You've got your whole vast wealth of experience, right? You're experiencing that, I'm experiencing something different, but I think what we agree on is those are like, at some point the CEO and the CTO need a product person. <laughs> However, the origin was they, they it comes together where, when they start to grow that they need to bring in that product person. The last category would be 100 person plus, right? I've talked to a couple of these guys. Uh, they have a couple hundred people at their company and their CTOs. And I think for them, maybe something um, more along the lines of like revisiting and not getting stale or, or shaking things up or doing some sort of audit. Like what, what advice do you give to them? Well, I, I kind of refer to these. Uh, in fact, it's in my new book. I structured it this way. I talk about startups, uh, growth stage companies and enterprises. Uh, and you're now describing the enterprises. Now, at this point, you're probably a public company or you're part of a much bigger company. You've got multiple products in your line. And, um, and I will, you know, I, I'd be the first to point out that most uh, large enterprise tech companies lose their mojo. Most of them lose their ability to actually innovate. I think I understand the reasons for that. It's not really rocket science. Most of the time, the, the visionary product leader is gone. Uh, the company has got all these assets and all these people like lawyers there to protect those assets. And they're, you know, they basically have a lot more to lose. So they're scared to really innovate. This is why I'm so impressed, like we talked about before, about what, what Adobe did uh, to really put half their revenue at risk to end up with something much better. Um, most companies don't have the courage to do that. There are some companies, not just Adobe, but if you look at Netflix, if you look at Amazon, which is really poster child for this, uh, if you look at Facebook, they're not afraid to keep making big bets and to keep moving forward. So it really, the issue is uh, if, the, if your hypothetical company here has lost its mojo, then the question is, how do you get it back? If they still got their mojo, then it's about how do you keep it? Um, it's much harder, of course, if they've lost it and you're trying to really turn that company around again. And that's, um, that's one of the hardest problems in our industry. I, I spend a lot of my time, <laughs> uh, well, most of my time is with the smaller startup and growth stage, but 
occasionally, as somebody I know for a long time will take a job as head of product, a new head of product at some older company that has really lost their mojo, and I will, uh, you know, do what I can to try to help them get it back. I will tell you that typically starts not at the head of product, but at the CEO. If the C, because we're really talking about a cultural change, mm. and to get that culture to change, to get the leaders to change, how they think about things, how they run their business, how they run their product world, they run their engineering world, how they staff it. That's uh, that's a super hard uh, challenge. Um, fortunately, there are several cases where companies have pulled that off. They really got their mojo back. Uh, and I and those are the ones that give give I think give me hope and give other people hope that it's possible. But but I always tell people it is one of the hardest things to do is to change culture like this. You know, I was reading your article, the one where you're mentioning Ray, and, and you were you started to go on um, on about the culture. How much do you talk about culture in your newer version of your book? A lot. It's one of the it's one of the four big topics. Good. Cause I loved it. I, I, when I was reading it, I have you peg, you know, everyone does this. I do isolated as the, you know, user experience type type stuff. And then when I started reading, consuming your culture content, I was like, I want, I want more culture from Marty. Yeah. Well, to me, it, it, that is really the most important topic. Um, if you really want a cons- consistent innovation for your customers, it's all about that culture. Do you ever do you ever experience bad products and like want to reach out to them? <laughs> oh yeah, all the time. Sometimes I just well, you know, we all do. We all do. And sometimes if I know somebody there, I will reach out. I'll get so frustrated. I'm like, dude, this is so bad. You really have to fix this. Um, most of the time, companies understand there are issues and are working to fix it. Like. Uh, I believe that Facebook understands today. I think they've actually understood it for a while, but they weren't really it, publicly acknowledging it. But they understand that there's some serious, I'm not talking about UX issues here. I'm talking about more yeah. product uh, fundamental issues, but they understand. And most of the people there uh, that I know, and I know a lot of people there, they are great people and they are, they're not, they have no interest in, in doing the wrong thing for the world or hurting the world. They, they very much want to help. Uh, but they, um, you know, they're, they're trying, they're, they're working on it. It is also a super hard problem that they've, that they've created. <laughs> they created it, but it's a super hard problem to solve. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I, I'm definitely rooting for them to solve it, but, um, but it's it's not easy. So most of the time, when products are really have these issues, it's not like they're unaware. And the last question, right? Super excited about this one. Uh, how do you deal with the celebrity of being Marty Cake? <laughs> like I assume I have this vision in my mind that you have like an endless stream of like product groupies standing on your lawn holding up signs like that say Marty. <laughs> Well, I hate to disappoint you, but that's not really the reality. So, no, it's uh, no, I there. Uh, you know, the product community is uh, growing, and it's a good sized community, but it's there is not that big, and so it's it's uh, it's not like that. For the official response to that question, I'm just going to go ahead and mark down um, excessive security detail, like 24 <laughs> seven. <laughs> you can't even go to the grocery store without security detail. Uh, <laughs> no, no. I I will say I was in China when I was in China for whatever reason. Like my book is incredibly popular in the tech community in China. I I still can't really explain it, but it is, and and so I have much more uh, of a of a of a sort of minor celebrity status there than in here. Are you tall? So that's kind of fun. Well, tall enough, yeah, but that it's not it's not bad. It's uh, you know, they've been really eating up product stuff for a long time and like I said there's not that many books in product and I had a good translator for my book several years ago and it's just uh, spread all across China's tech community. So, uh, when are you speaking next? Where uh, where can the groupie start to line up? <laughs> well, I uh, I always have talks coming up. I have, um, let's see, I have a couple coming up 
that are pretty good. One is there is a launch party being thrown for me by Design Map, um, which is one of you may have heard of Design Map. They're one of the sort of uh, leading design firms in San Francisco. So that is on uh, the 22nd in in San Francisco. I'm going to be giving a talk in uh, Mountain View at Intuit's offices on the 25th. Uh, it's called the Lean Product Meetup. Um, if you've heard of Dan Olson or Dan Olson's uh, sessions, they're always popular, and I'll be there on the uh, 25th. Those are the two talks coming up in the next couple of weeks. Fantastic. So I'll list those in the show notes, and as well as all the other references and links to Stratechery, I think is what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'll link all that. And man, this is... Uh, I loved this. This is exactly what I wanted. It's, it's it, This exceeded my expectations. You created uh, a person that loves Marty. <laughs> cool. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.